we are still in the series, I believe, help my unbelief. Last week we talked about forgiveness. I am forgiven. We looked at several passages that outline the fact that when, when we accept salvation through Jesus Christ, when we in, invite him into our life and we accept the gift of forgiveness, it's permanent. It never goes away. It never runs out. It never expires. He forgives our past, present, and future sins. We talked about all that, and that was one side of forgiveness. The other side of forgiveness is my response to that. Because I am forgiven of so much, then I will also forgive. So today's title is, I believe I am forgiven, help me forgive as Christ forgave me. That's the command we're given. So I'm going to give you the big idea, the big idea up front again. The big idea is in response to my own forgiveness, okay, in response to my own forgiveness, which I did not earn, nor do I deserve, okay, and that's all of our forgiveness. None of us earned it, none of us deserved it. So in response to that, I will learn to forgive others in the same way. And eventually do so without any thought or hesitation. Now, it's important that we say, I will learn, because... Almost none of us at the point of our salvation are fully capable of forgiveness and forgiving others. We grow in this. We learn how to do it. We spend a lifetime learning to be like Christ, learning to think like him, act like him. And, and eventually, as we grow, we will learn to forgive and eventually we'll do it without thinking about it. That's, that's the, the goal. But it is a response. So let's look at some scriptures and let's, let's figure out what God has to say about us forgiving others. So Ephesians 4, it's really 1 through 32, but that's too long to print and it's really more than I want to read today. So I will let you read the passage on your own. That's maybe call it homework if you want to. But I, I put the highlights in, the, the parts of it I wanted to point out. So here's in your notes what it says and we'll fill in some blanks. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling, worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the opening three verses. And when it says, I urge you to live a life worthy... I mean, is live a life that matches the high standard of Christ. Uh, live a life that, that exhibits the lofty goal of being Christ-like. When my kids were young, often as they went out the door, we had a, a, something we said to them. And, and some of them will be here for Christmas, and you can ask them if it's true. They'll, they'll identify with it. They'd leave the door, and the last thing we'd say is, be sure and act like you belong to somebody. And, and that... It was a phrase that referred to many conversations we had. And we told them often that, first of all, you belong to the family of God. Second of all, you belong to the Martin family. And as you go out in the public and as you go out and live your life, you represent God and you represent us. So act like you belong to the family of God and, and know the standards that God has given you. And act like you belong to the Martin family and know the standards that we've given you. So in many ways, that's what Paul's saying. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You are a member of the family of God. And he's saying, go out there and act like it. Go live like it. Live a life worthy. It's a, it's a high calling. 
And then he goes on for several verses to, to give instruction and examples. And the beginning of it, in verse 2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. And, and we can easily see where that fits into that. We want to be humble and gentle towards others, not proud and not harsh. It says, Be patient. And then it says, Bearing with one another in love. And then it says, Make every effort to keep the unity. And I, I, I included verse 2 and 3 because that bearing with one another... And the phrase, make every effort to keep unity, that sounds an awful lot like forgiveness. I don't think we can have unity in the body without forgiveness. Okay, And I don't think we're going to be able to forgive unless we learn to bear with one another. You notice he doesn't say, if necessary, bear with one another, or uh, when you're having issues, make every effort to keep the unity. He just assumes, and we get the whole passage in every, every scripture we look at today, there's an assumption that, that we will offend each other. I will offend you, you will offend me. I will have a habit that annoys you. You will have a habit that annoys me. The late person will always look at the early person, and vice versa. The loud person will look at the quiet person. The extrovert will look at the introvert, and vice versa. We're not the same. We don't have the same interests. We don't have the same personalities. And there will be things that we need to bear with, that we need to overlook, that we need simply to forgive. And, and keeping the unity means we're moving in the same direction. So on, a, on different occasions, various ones will have to come in line behind somebody else. Now, that looks an awful lot like forgiveness. Now we skip to verse 17, and it says, So I tell you this. And the so is like a therefore. When you see a therefore, you say, Why is it there? What's it there for? Well, you see a so, you should say, So what is it there for? Well, the so refers to the live a life worthy of your calling. And all these instructions. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And it says Gentiles, you can just... Fill in the definition, people who do not know God. People who do not know the God of Israel. He says, so I want you to live a worthy life of a high calling. And here's some ways you can do it and some things you need to do. And because you need to live a high calling, you should no longer live as Gentiles. In other words, don't live like you used to live. Don't live like everyone else lives. Live like you belong to the family of Christ and, and set a high standard for yourself. Set lofty goals. And then verse 25, after many descriptions of what that looks like, not living as Gentiles, he says, therefore each of you must. So because there is a lofty standard to live up to, and, and because uh, we're no longer to live as Gentiles, here's what you must do. And there's uh, several verses there that outline a variety of things, but verse 32, the one I want to highlight, says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now this is a sentence, and each phrase builds on the one before. Be kind and compassionate. We can kind of grasp those words, what they mean, and how we treat people. We're going to be kind and compassionate to one another. But in the process of being kind and compassionate, we forgive each other. And, and how do we forgive each other? Just as Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? Well, he did it sacrificially. He's done it consistently. He does it constantly. He does it completely. 
and he does it lovingly. And we could probably make a very long list of words that, that, that identify how Christ forgave you. He forgave you before you asked for it, made, it, made the forgiveness possible. He forgave you instantly when you did ask for it. He forgave all your sins, the past, present, and the future. His standards never change. The, the deal has never changed. And we need to forgive others in similar ways. So A in your notes, we must forgive for the sake of unity. That's all the way up there in verse 3. We must forgive for the sake of unity so we can move together in the same direction, serving God side by side. We must forgive in obedience. Okay, in obedience. All these scriptures, everyone we're going to look at today, portrays uh, forgiveness as something necessary, and it's commanded, so it's obedience. And lastly, to be Christ-like. Just as in Christ God forgave you, we're going to be more Christ-like as we learn to forgive. So there's, there's three reasons, unity, obedience, and to be Christ-like. And then B, we must forgive both big and small. Christ forgave really big stuff and small stuff. Sometimes, often, because lots of people will do the same thing, and sometimes repetitively because the same person will keep doing it over and over again. So that's how God forgives us. He forgives us in those ways. So back to the big idea. In response to my own forgiveness, which I did not earn, nor do I deserve, I will learn to forgive others in the same way and eventually do so without any thought or hesitation. Keep that in mind as we continue on. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's that phrase again. It, it keeps popping up all over the place. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as Christ forgave you. And, and what does that forgiveness entail? What does it include? Bearing with each other. Bearing with each other and forgiving one another. I like how the New Living Translation has it, so I included that in your notes. It says, make allowance for each other's faults. That just says it plain, right? Make allowance for each other's faults. Because we have faults. Those around us have faults. I have faults. Make allowance. Overlook it. Let, let God work on what he wants to work on. Don't, don't zero in on something that, that, that rubs you the wrong way. It's bear with. Make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Because again, we're going to be offended. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. What's our reason? Because Christ forgave us. He did it first. We're doing it in response to him. So A, God puts up with, okay, that's what goes in the blank. God puts up with a lot of attitude and behavior that he never calls us on while he works on our hearts and minds in other areas. I really hope you can grasp this, and I really hope you can embrace this, because it's, it's just true. We have attitude and behavior. We, we say things, think things, and do things that don't honor God on a regular basis. And God does not call us on every one of them every single time. I would say that God overlooks more than he addresses because we can only handle to be addressed in so many topics in so many areas. And I think God says, okay, I'm going to overlook this, even though I don't like it, because we're working on this. And when we get this, that's going to help with that. 
And when we get the next thing, it's going to help with that. And eventually, by concentrating on what I want to work on, the other things will fall into place. So God puts up with a lot of attitude and a lot of behavior he never calls us on. He's not happy about it, but he doesn't call us on it. The reason he puts up with it is he's working on our hearts and our minds and other areas. If, if you want to do a, a fun little study, uh, look at some of the Old Testament folks who we can identify things they did wrong, like Gideon, like Abraham, like Moses, some of the heroes of the faith. Look into their lives and look for the stuff they got wrong and ask the question, why didn't God, why didn't God nail them for this? Why didn't God get excited about this? Why didn't he address it? Well, one, we don't know that he didn't. But two, in every one of those cases, he had a much bigger thing he was working on. So B, because of A, B, God expects us to forgive or put up with. A lot of attitude and behavior as well. While he works on the heart of the individual. So God puts up a lot of, uh, with a lot of stuff while he works on our hearts. He expects us to also put up with a lot of stuff. Well, not I work on your heart, but he works on your heart. You get that? We're part of God's process. When we love anyway, and let God work on the things he wants to work on. Now, when God speaks and says, bring this up, we bring it up. But, but we're, not, we're not the, the morality police. We're not the, we're not the Pharisees, Right? So God puts up with a lot of stuff we're supposed to put up with a lot of stuff. That's, that's an area of forgiveness that we can thrive in. That's how we welcome people into the church. That's how people walk in the door and don't feel like we're looking at them or talking about them because we're not. We're just glad you're here. Whatever God has to work on you for the day, more power to him. Whatever he wants to work on me, more power to him as well. So we're going to bear with we're going to overlook faults. We're going to make allowances. We're going to forgive. Matthew 6, 12, on the other side of your notes, it says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, instantly, most of you have realized that's part of the Lord's Prayer. You've heard it since you were a kid. You've probably said it many, many times. You learned it in the King James, and you've tried to translate it to the NIV. Maybe it's worked. Maybe it hasn't. But you recognize the phrase, Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. The Amplified Bible says it like this. And forgive us our debts, sins and moral failures, as we have forgiven our debtors, letting go of both the wrong and the resentment. That's a, that's a good definition of terms there. That's, those, that's good language use. We forgive others and we accept forgiveness from God. Now, we say that phrase over and over and over again, and, and, and we think we know what it means, but if we, if we actually dissect it the way Americans read it, it doesn't really work. And forgive us our debts. God, you forgive us as we also forgive others. You forgive me like I forgive other people. I dare you to pray that prayer. That would be bad news, right? That'd be really bad news. We don't want God to treat us the way we treat other people. That, that's not a formula that works. Or, or we could read it like this. At the same time that I forgive others, forgive me. Also, bad idea, bad formula. Because I want God to forgive me quickly and completely. 
not slowly over time with obstacles along the way. So, so we, we can't read it like that. We have to examine it, and we have to figure out how they would have read it. And a lot of times in translations, we, we get the words right, but we put the phrases in the wrong order, or, or we just we say it, and we, we count on pastors and other people explaining it to us. So the point of this prayer, A in your notes, the point of this prayer is not to ask God to rise up to our level of forgiveness, because that's ridiculous, but for us to rise up to his. For us to rise up to his. And then B, we would say it, this is how we would say it today, help us forgive others as you have forgiven us. Help us to do it like you've done it. Help us to do it in the same fashion. And that fits with all the other commands, all the other Ways we're, we're taught about forgiveness as it refers to Christ. Forgive as Christ forgave. Forgive as Jesus forgave. So he's saying, help us to forgive as the Father forgave. And we've already talked about what that looks like, so we won't go into that again. But even as we say that prayer, and if you ever say that prayer, there's nothing wrong with saying the prayer. Just realize what you're saying. What you're saying is, God, the way you've forgiven me, help me forgive other people. Help, help me do it the way you've done it. Okay? Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is a, a bit longer of a passage, and I do want to turn to it. I will read it if you don't want to go there really quickly. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I want to read this to you. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And that's kind of how he would have said it, because Peter was walking in. He had a plan. He, he walked into this conversation. He asked a question he thought he already knew the answer to. And then he was going to give a much better answer than the standard answer, which he did. He gave a better answer than the standard answer. And he says, well, how many times should I forgive? And then kind of leaning in so that Jesus could reach his shoulder to pat him on the back, he said up to seven times. Like, how many times should we forgive? I, I know, I know it's, it's probably three or four, but I'm going to say seven because I'm Peter, the head apostle. I'm in charge when you're not around, so I know how to step it up. Seven, right, Jesus? And when he's just waiting for that next, good job, Peter, you're the man, Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And some people believe that really means 70 times seven times. It doesn't matter which it is, because they both communicate the same thing. Peter says, hey, how many times do I have to forgive? Here's a number beyond expectation. Here's a number that, that meets all the requirements and then some. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're wrong, Peter. It doesn't, it doesn't meet the standard. Let's make it 77 times. Let's make it 70 times seven times. So Jesus answers, no, no, not even close. It's, it's immeasurable. You're going for, to forgive, and you're not even going to count, because you can't even count how many times you need to forgive. And then verse 23 says, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore, well, he's going to give an illustration. You need to forgive 77 times. Let me, let me illustrate. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of God is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. That's a lot of gold, in case you're wondering, in case it wasn't obvious. 
Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now you might think that's pretty harsh. You might go, whoa, that's mean. Put him, he's going to sell them. Well, this was not mean. This was actually probably the agreed upon arrangement before the money was loaned. In, in this culture, this is how you borrowed money. You said, I need, I want to borrow some money. I got a, a, a way to make that money, produce money. And if you loan me the money, we'll get it. I'll pay you back at this, this interest. And uh, you know, I'm hoping to make much more than that. And when we're all said and done, we'll both be happy. The collateral was your indentured servitude. Which means if you can't pay it back, you agree ahead of time that you will go work for someone else and the wages you earn working then go to the lender to pay him back. That's, that would be the, the normal arrangement and that's what happened. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So they were sold into indentured servitude. It's really a voluntary thing. The man would have been fulfilling his contract. And since he would be living on someone else's property, working with someone else's equipment, and all that kind of stuff, then he has no need for any of his own possessions, so they'd sell that as kind of the down payment. So this is not mean in any way. It's, it's just really the standard way of doing things. And he, he could have been harsher, so he's actually being a bit nice in this. But verse 26, At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Well, the amount of gold necessary, the idea there is he could not pay it back. He could not in his lifetime produce enough money to pay him back. But he says, I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. In his mind, he says, you know, you can't pay me back. There's no way you can pay me back. We're going to have this conversation every time I collect, collect on the debts. And he says, so I have a solution. I'm just going to cancel it. So he canceled the 10,000 bags of gold debt. Verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Not that much, okay? He grabbed him and began to choke him. So he grabbed him by the neck. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. The same thing he had just asked for a much less amount of money. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I said it could be harsher. This is harsher. Instead of letting him go into the servitude to pay the debt, he's going to hold this man hostage while his family is now responsible for the debt. So if he has a wife and children or he has brothers or something, he's in jail until his family pays the debt. So he can't even go earn some of the money now. He's, he's making someone else do it. So it's even harsher. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told this master, their master, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, the original servant. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. It got worse. Verse 35, 
the warning, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now I want to I do something right here in the middle. I want to teach you something. You know, we, we don't build doctrine on Proverbs. We've talked about that. We also don't build doctrine out of parables. We learn the lesson presented in the parable, and it, it gives us principles and things like that. So it says, in, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should repay, pay back everything he owned. That is not saying that God will take back forgiveness. We looked at all kinds of scriptures that said that's not the case. That's not how it works. That's not what's going to happen. So we know that's not true. So that's not the point. What is the point? The point is that the master responded to the lack of forgiveness. Okay, let's look at our notes. Let's fill in some blanks. Get a little more idea here. So A, Jesus told Peter that he was to be exceedingly generous with his forgiveness, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. So that's, that's, that's the statement. That's the lesson. The lesson to be learned is, no, Peter, don't be selfish or don't, don't measure your forgiveness. Be generous with your forgiveness. And then he shares this parable. So let's fill in some details. Number one, 10,000 bags of gold equals... 20 years of day labor wages. So for this man to pay him back, he would have had to work 20 years, the equivalent of 20 years, not taking anything for himself, but paying him back. So the idea we're supposed to get from this is just an impossible amount to repay. Okay, number two, the master handed down a fair and just response to the servant's inability to pay. Only the master could forgive the response if that's what he wanted to do. And, and selling him to, into servitude was the agreed upon. It was just. It, it was culturally just. That was what would be expected. So it was, it was fair. It wasn't harsh. Number three, canceling the debt was an unheard of extreme grace. The man didn't deserve it, but he received it. And to, to cancel so much debt would be unheard of. It would, it would never be considered a possibility. Number four, 100 silver coins equals one day of day labor wages. So we have one day of earnings versus 20 years of earnings. So you start to see the, the discrepancy here. And we're talking about forgiveness, so we have the same difference in the sins as far as the illustration goes. Number five, the first servant's response to the second servant's inability to repay was overkill. It, it was extreme selfishness, grabbing him by the neck, choking him. And when he begs for a little bit more time, which a little bit more time was probably all he needed to pay him back, he put him in, in prison. So it was overkill. Number six, this response was also uninhibited by the master's earlier forgiveness. So the fact that his master had forgiven him 20 years worth of labor, 20 years worth of money being raised, the fact that he was forgiven all of it did not enter his mind when he saw the next person. So it didn't change him. It, it didn't have the effect it should have had. Number seven, the master responded to him with a much harsher response than before. Much harsher response response than before. This time he did put him in prison. 
And then number eight, Jesus issued a strong warning to those who refused to forgive. He issued a warning, and we should take that into account. So C, let's continue on this. Uh, Jesus made two big points in this dialogue. Two big points. Number one, there is no limit to the forgiveness that you are to grant others. Based on what you have been forgiven by God, there is no limit to the amount of forgiveness you should offer others. That was the first point. Exceedingly generous. Number two, to refuse to forgive is a slap in the face to the one who forgave you of so much sin already. It's a slap in the face. The first master, the, the, the king was offended because of what the first servant did. It's a slap in the face. So that's the two points. Number three is the conclusion. Those who refuse to forgive will be disciplined so that they learn to forgive in the future. This man was disciplined. He was put into jail and tortured. Disciplined. We will not lose our salvation if we don't forgive, but we will be dealt with. We'll be disciplined so that we learn that lesson. So all of these passages say this, in response to my own forgiveness, which I did not earn, nor do I deserve, I will learn to forgive others in the same way and eventually do so without thought or hesitation. D is, is, is D to all the scriptures. It, it, it could be its own thing, but it fit in here, but it applies to all of them. And, and you have to hear this. Jesus never used the word forget, nor does God when he forgives. Remember, he forgives, he, he puts our sins as far away as the east is from the west. That, that's how much he forgives. That's the, the level of forgiveness. But God doesn't forget what those sins were. Why would he forget why Jesus was suffering on the cross? Why would he forget the things that are going to be temptations to you in the future? Why would he forget the areas he needs to help you grow in after you're saved? Why would he forget? And how could a, a, an omniscient God forget something? So not even God forgets. He forgives. Okay? The, the phrase, forgive and forget, is not in the Bible. It is not based on Scripture. It's from secular literature. There's two or three competing sources where it started. It, it's not from Scripture. I think religious people tried to say it, but I think they maybe took it too far. The word forget is not in the Scripture. So, number one there, if God forgot, he would not be God, because he wouldn't be omniscient. And, and for the other reasons. For us, it's a matter of wisdom and protection. I can forgive over and over and over again, but I don't walk back into the situation to be hurt in the same way over and over and over again. Right? I can forgive someone who's harmed me, but I'm wise, and I don't allow it to happen again. Forgiveness is to not hold you personally accountable to me. Sometimes forgiveness means I'm going to let the police handle this. Sometimes it means I'm going to let the government handle it. I'm going to let my parents handle it. I'm going to let the boss handle it. I'm going to let God handle it the way he wants to handle it. And I'm not going to make any demands, and I'm not going to pursue it. I'm going to let God handle it. 
I don't forget, though, what happened. If somebody lies to me over and over again, I don't say, well, I forgave, so I forget. And if you want to lie to me again, it'll be like the very first time. No, that's ridiculous. Put any sin you want in there. We don't, that's not how we operate. It's we take this with wisdom and protection. We protect ourselves. We protect others. We have wisdom. We also don't want to put ourselves in situations where we might be tempted to sin or be harmed. So God does call us to forgive. He calls us to leave it in his hands. He calls us to not seek revenge and to not seek our own retribution for our own good. He says, forgive as I forgave. God's forgiven some awful big stuff. And he's forgiven some repetitive stuff. He forgives, but he doesn't forget. He doesn't, he doesn't walk around going, well, I'd like to do something about that, but I can't remember what happened. No, he, he knows. He's omniscient. We need to forgive. That doesn't mean forget. But the allowance to not forget does not give you permission to not forgive. We are called to forgive. It will be very difficult on some occasions and very easy on other occasions. But if we're going to love as Christ loved, we have to forgive as Christ forgave. And what greater blessing or what greater outcome could it be than for the person who harmed you to come to Christ because you forgave them and then to become a different person where they're no longer harming others? That would be a great thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let these scriptures sit in your heart and mind. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do his work. We're going to close in prayer. The beginning of our prayers is on the screen. I believe I am forgiven. Help me forgive as Christ forgave me. I want you to concentrate in the words, as Christ forgave me. So let's start together. I will say, dear Jesus, we'll say this line together and then I'll finish. Dear Jesus, I believe I am forgiven. Help me forgive as Christ forgave me. Father, it is amazing how you forgave us. We say we didn't deserve it, and we say we didn't earn it, but those statements, they're, they're just too easy to say in reflection of what they actually mean. We actually deserve hell, but you saved us from it. We bring nothing to the table. We, we didn't earn a dime of it. So thank you for that. Help us to always reflect on this and understand it and, and to think about what this means. And then when an opportunity comes for us to forgive someone else, whether it be the tiniest thing that happens over and over and over and over and over again, or a big thing that we cannot let happen again, whatever the case may be, help us to find forgiveness in our hearts. Forgiveness to let, to let you deal with the consequences. To let you lay out the discipline. To let you be in charge of the punishment if it's required. But for us to simply put it in your hands and say, I forgive any responsibility towards me. It belongs to God. So Father, help us to forgive. And, and, and we probably need to think about what that means and what that looks like. And, and, and in various situations and in various circumstances. And, and applying it to, to things that may not even make us happy today. But Father, help us to forgive. It is the best thing. And it is the example that you gave us. So Father, I leave it in your hands and ask that the Holy Spirit does his work. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.